certain you guys have no questions about election and predestination, so we can just move right on to um, now. Oh, <laughs> I told you I have to look up. Don's got a question. Okay. Uh, this is just for the blanks. Right oh, now. the blanks. We're missing blanks. Um, oh, dear. E is undeserved, I take it? Un- undeserved or unmerited, yeah. And what's F? Favor. Favor. Okay. Favor. That's it for now. Oh, that's it for now. Okay. Oh, Jim and then Joanna. Okay. Oh. I was having a discussion with a coworker a while back uh, about Calvinism versus Arminianism. Mm-hmm. And one of the main points of his argument for Arminianism, which is them choosing to believe, was John 3.16, uh, the part where it says, whoever believes in yeah. him. Can you speak to that and resolve that argument for me? Just simply I'll take a short swing at it, sure. Um, yeah. And, and let, me, let me preface that. Let me get my Greek out here. I, I thought I might need it, so I got my Greek New Testament. It's one of the nice things about being out of the Psalms. My Hebrew is mostly pathetic, um, but my Greek I've managed to hold on to relatively somewhat. But um, one of the things that's helpful, I think that's important to, to grasp, and if, if you were to grab that series on election and predestination, the very first message I give is to try to establish the concept um, that is... I'll explain. The names don't matter. The philosophical name is concurrence. The theological name is... Com- no, the philosophical name is compatibilism. Right, George? No, George. Yes, it's compat- that's the philosophical name, compatibilism. The theological name is concurrence. $5 words for we act and choose in a way that does not nullify or remove God's ultimate sovereign actions and choice. We are hardwired to think it's either or. So the second we see, oh, look, there's man choosing, therefore God can't be in the picture and vice versa. And that, that assumption, which is nowhere taught in Scripture, and in fact the Scripture teaches against in a number of places, is usually the primary argument. It's why even last week I showed with all these active things God is doing to us, where we're the passive recipient, what's the three, three things we do? We hear, we believe, and we hope. And you believe. You really do believe. You must believe. No one who doesn't believe will be saved. You have to do that. You choose to do that. You freely do that. In no way nullifying, mitigating anything else Paul says in that long sentence about election, predestination, and any of those things. So the first would be there is no inherent conflict between men choosing and God choosing. Um, That's the first thing that I'd want to establish. A woodenly literal reading of John 3.16 would be as follows. Hold on. Um, John 3.16 has a word that a lot of people like to make a big deal about that's really not there. Okay, here is John 3.16, Jeremy, Pastor Jeremy's woodenly literal translation. Um, There we go. In this way, God loved, loved God the world. This is the way, so even the first bit, God so loved the world, the so isn't emphatic of extent, it's how. In this manner, in this way, God loved the world. It's not the so, I've heard people, he loved it so, it's not so much in that sense. It's in this manner, that's the idea behind the Greek word. So in this particular way, God loved the world. 
that the son, the monogenes, the unique, one-of-a-kind, sometimes translated only begotten, but it's better understood as unique, uh, the same, that same word monogenes is used of um, Isaac, of Abraham in Hebrews. And of course, Isaac is not Abraham's only son. He has another son named... Ishmael, but he's the son of promise. He's the unique promise. He's the unique son. So Jesus is the monogenes. He's the one of a kind, unique son of God. Because we become sons and daughters, as we even heard today. So in this way, God loved the world that he sent his one of a kind, his unique son. Um, where are we? In monogenes, he gave. He gave his only son so that, why did he give him? In order that, and then what you get is pos, which is singular, not plural. Each one believing. It would be my woodenly literal. You've got, you got a participle that follows it. The, so the English word whosoever is indefinite. It doesn't have any definite referent. The Greek is definite. Each believing one, each one believing, would be how I'd woodenly literally translate it, which means he sent his son so that each and every believer would be saved. That'd be, I think, a completely legitimate way to translate it. And I'm fine with whosoever unless someone wants to ride there's this big nebulous question mark, who knows, God doesn't know, it's whosoever. That's just not present in the Greek text. The Greek text is definite. God sent us some, it's individual, it's not even corporate. It's each one believing. It's not everyone, but each one believing might not perish but have eternal life. So a woodenly literal reading of John 3.16 says God gave his sons that each and every believer would be saved. Now I got no problem going further than that even based on other texts and saying everyone's invited everyone can come no one gets turned away no one who comes to me says Jesus in John 6 will be turned away God has commanded all men everywhere to repent Paul says in Acts so but John 3.16 woodenly literally if anything strengthens the Calvinistic side uh, it's just that people want to ride the King James's whosoever in directions that the text doesn't support that would be my five minute response that's kind of what we talked about, but he couldn't get past why even give us the choice then if God predestines us. And he felt uncomfortable with the idea that they didn't have a choice, and I think that's probably why they're yeah. Arminians. Right, right. The, the, that's, that's getting back to that he, the assumption that if God shows our choice is meaningless, to which I've got to say that's, that's an um, illegitimate conclusion that the Bible doesn't support. Um, so... Again, you've got Joseph using it negatively in John. I'll give you some examples of where this notion, concurrence, and these are just big words to describe mysteries. No one that I'm aware of is suggesting they know how God sovereignly chooses and man chooses freely without any coercion. No one that I know of is trying to argue they know how that happens. Naming it is simply saying that it does happen. So in Genesis 50-20, you've probably heard me use this numerous times, um, Joseph's brothers come to him and they say, oh, please don't whoop up on us. Dad made you promise. And, oh, you know. and Joseph says, um, am I in the place of God? You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And the, the, the word mean, meant, purposed, is used in parallel construction, which means grammatically you're going to be really, really hard put to have it mean anything significantly different in the two usages. Um, and what people want to make it mean is you meant it for evil and God turned it for good. No, no, you meant it and God meant it. There's two purposes, there's two meanings taking place in that work in, in this action of selling Joseph into slavery. And 
And Joseph can see divine intentionality that's praiseworthy and human intentionality that's wicked. Uh, Philippians 2.14, as you've obeyed now in my my presence, even more so in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Uh, It's a Greek word, energo, which we get energy from. Get to work. Why? Because it's God who works within you. So who's working, me or God? Yes. And my, my and, I, and I totally get that the, the intuitive nature, the, uh, what would seem rational or what would seem to jump out is, if God's at work in me, then why on earth are you telling me to get to work? I can kick back, let go, let God, and rest. In Paul's economy and in his thinking, it's precisely because God's at work in me to both to will and to do that I need to get to work. So on the one hand, I'll grant that it would seem intuitive, it would seem natural to think, if God's at work, then I'm not. Um, that's just simply not the way the Bible goes. So I just would address that. I, I, get, I get how you want to think, well, if God chose, then I didn't, or my choice is meaningless. The Bible just doesn't present it that way. And um, we've, we've got to let the Bible instruct our thinking and not make our thinking instruct the Bible. And that's partly why today I didn't defend it. It's so, in my mind, obvious in this text. And you've got a really, I mean, I've got a dear friend of mine who is, um, doesn't believe this. And the, the, the hurdles and the, the, the jumping of rope and the, the, the gymnastics you have to do to get around a passage like this is epic. And it ultimately comes down to a philosophical issue. It's questions like, how can God really be loving? How can God really be fair? How can God really be just? Um, which I think are legitimate questions to ask. My first question would be, but, but can we ask it acknowledging that's what the text says? Or do we hold the text hostage and say, yeah, that sure is what the text looks like it says, but I refuse to accept it until you answer all my questions. So I think it's great to ask those questions as a confused child saying, Dad, you've said some pretty hard stuff, and uh, I'm, I'm struggling with it. Help me out here. I think that's one thing, and I think that you get gracious answers from a father. It's another thing when you get the snotty-nosed kid going, why do I have to clean my room? When, you know, basically justify yourself to me. And so that's, that's how I'd start to push back and just say, look, I'm just trying to think what the Bible thinks, say what the Bible says. It seems pretty clear it says this. Now, from that perspective, can we wrestle through some of the problems? Or are we really going to champion what seems right to us and seems good to us above that? But you can also, like I said, go back to that. It's just a four-sermon series. I had Mandy make a bunch of them. They're on her desk. You can grab one. They're on the podcast. And try to deal with some of the, especially in that first message, the philosophical problems more deeply than here. Does that? Okay. Jim. Okay. Um, something completely different. Yeah. Uh, 2D. If Two? you're not going to expound on that in a further sermon, could you do that now? Um, sure. Uh, to be holy and blameless before him. God, as far as we can tell, and here, this is more piecing together, there's a couple key passages that deal with um, this, these, these themes. John 17 is a big one. This is a big one. Romans 9 and 10 is a big one. As far as I can tell, God's endgame purpose for creation is to set about a state of affairs where a redeemed, glorified, pure people bought by his son are in his presence beholding his glory and enjoying him and worshiping him forever. And that everything else in human history 
is a means to that end. And I do mean everything. Um, and so this is a snapshot, a look at that. And so the, the ingredients of that are the praise, so it's the praise of his glorious grace. Um, and us being blameless, we can't be in the presence of a holy God and be sinful. He'd consume us. Um, and even questions like, why would a holy God allow sin? Well, there's a hint even here. We know from Ephesians 1, 6, that God intends the glory of his grace to be praised, right? What's grace? How, how did I define grace earlier? Unmerited favor, right, or mercy. Without sin, can there be grace? Without transgression, can there? So, and this is, this is, this is deduction, and I want to be very careful separating biblical taught things from deduction or inference. Um, this is my own deduction. It's Jonathan Edwards, really, deduction. It's not mine. I got it from Piper, who got it from Edwards. Uh, but I think there's some soundness in, in throwing it forward. But recognize, it's just our deduction. Edwards, in his book, The End for Which God Created the World, basically argues, based on that verse, Ephesians 1, 6, and based on... Um, Romans 9, what if God wanted to display, and says, basically argues that he thinks the Bible lays out that God wants the fullness of his glory to be put on display. It, I think, I can even remember part of the quote, it would not be fitting, this is Piper quoting Edwards, it would not be fitting for one attribute of God to shine more brightly than another and for another to be dimmed. Our God is a savior, our God is, is merciful, how would anyone know that unless there were people who needed mercy, right? And so in Edward's view, all of history is a theater on which to display the glory of God. Um, that, that certainly seems to be where Paul's going in Romans 9. What if God wanted to display his mercy, prepared for beforehand vessels of mercy, right? Um, that's implied in verse 6, to the praise of the glory of his grace, um, and so that seems to be, as best as we can understand, the end game of the created order is a redeemed people in his son, redeemed by his son, face to face with him, adopted as sons, beholding his glory and praising him forevermore. Amen. That seems to be the end game of all history. And then everything else can be plugged in as getting us there. Um, I, I think that's a part of the gospel that's often ignored and because of that, it cheapens the gospel to a degree that it makes it more about um, us in a way that, that I was having this conversation with someone about number, letter D there. I've never heard that before. Mm. And it tie, it, to me, it ties it all together. It, it, it Absolutely, it screams God's purpose and, and makes it uh, right. more complete, I guess. But. And if, if you're interested in going any further with this and you want a small book, Piper's got a book, God is the Gospel. I don't know if anyone's read that. Um, it's excellent. And that's basically his point, but you just said, that the Gospel, heaven, okay, I'll come at it backwards. Piper comes at it backwards. Um, he, he wants to identify a problem, and he says... Ask yourself this question. We'll do a little thought experiment here. We'll do Piper's thought experiment. If you could go to heaven and experience every joy 
of, of the arts and of the mind, every physical joy of both food and sex, every pleasure that you know of, uninterrupted, with no pain, with no frustration, pure joy, bliss, all the pleasures of society, all of your friends and loved ones and pets, the beauty of creation, um, the exhilaration of excitement, and just every good thing you can think of, and God wasn't there. And he wasn't mad at you. He just wasn't there. He was someplace else. Jesus was someplace else. And he loved you and you loved him, but just he wasn't there. Would you be satisfied? Would you be happy? We know that's the answer we're supposed to say, right? But if we're honest, we're kind of like, probably for a couple thousand years. <laughs> right? No. And, and Piper's getting at the point that if, if we simply put those lesser things as the good news of the gospel, do you want to go and see? Like, Janet wants to go see Bonnie. Amen. That's beautiful. Pastor Joel talked about we're caught up together and there's a reunion. That's not going to be the chief glory of going to heaven. It's simply not. Going, going and seeing dead loved ones and the Apostle Paul and Moses, those are all going to be lesser, far lesser lights than beholding him face to face. Now we see through a mirror dimly, then face to face. And yet if in our gospel we present those lesser things as the chief glory, we run the risk of people coming to God for the wrong reasons. If you become a Christian just because you want to see your dead mother again, there's a question like, is, have you actually seen the glory of God in the gospel in the face of Jesus Christ? Because if you have, I don't think your primary concern would be reuniting with a lost loved one. I don't think that would be your primary um, concern. Um, Jesus describes the kingdom of heaven as like a treasure in a field that when a man finds it, he sells everything in his joy to possess it. And so when people start to get a glimpse of the fact, you get to see and behold and be with face-to-face God. That is supposed to be the primary highest good of the gospel. And by, by all means, there are lesser goods that are wonderful and delightful. But you're right. I think a lot of times it becomes the gospel can be, do you not want to go to hell? And you want to go to heaven, and then the the follow. And when you go to heaven, you'll see your loved one. God will be, as opposed. To, there's this holy God. I mean, a more God-centered approach might be. There's a holy and righteous God who wants to make you His son, who wants you to be before Him forever in fellowship and communion, beholding His glory. He's willing to do that. Right, right. Um, no, I, I think the, that. I mean, and, and part of the problem also before we make rules of sharing the gospel is. Even in the book of Acts, there's no consistency. And so you don't always have two hours to explain the gospel. <laughs> you know. And so I don't want to make anyone who... Uh, I remember once I left the resurrection out of a gospel presentation. I was in the park doing open-air evangelism. And I went back to the people I had talked to. I said, Oops, one more thing. <laughs> yeah. uh, no, I absolutely did. I felt like an idiot. Uh, so... So if you even go through the book of Acts and try to outline the various gospel presentations, there's not a lot of um, commonality. So you, you, to quote my old pastor, John MacArthur, it's kind of like you know, a pinball game. You bounce around a bit and hope you score some points before you go down the middle. Um, actually, he was describing being on Larry King with that. But um, there's a sense in which, yeah, you, you have your conversation, you try to bring spiritual truth on you try to declare truth, and they may at any point cut and run. And so you, you tell them truth and you try to figure out what they need to hear, what aspects they're most at war with, you know. Um, so I don't want to. I don't want to say if you don't simply if you don't make God the center of the gospel, you're not doing it right. But when you step back and look at the big picture of how we present it, that's where you can start noticing drift. Absolutely, 
And if God isn't the center of the gospel, we may want to take steps to move our presentation of the gospel to get him more into center focus. And certainly in the worst case, the gospel becomes about these really nice people that are really valuable and who, you know, basically God becomes the butler who serves them. And it's all about them. No, it's, it's... And that's, that's kind of what I was saying. Um, without the purpose of God doing a work, he who began a good work right. will carry it out. Is If you leave that aspect of the gospel, gospel out, then you're at risk of humanizing the gospel, making right. it about us. Well, and the other piece is in both here and in chapter 2, um, he connects. Again, I was trying to make the point earlier, it's not just about redemption. Because again... That's a wonderful truth of the gospel, redemption and, self and forgiveness. But in, in Paul's economy in Ephesians, it's always linked with holiness and holy living, that we can be pure and blameless before him. Go to, go to chapter 2, um, where that passage that establishes justification by grace alone, through faith alone, apart from works. But keep finishing the sentence. So Ephesians 2... Um, Let's start in verse 4. The, the verse that we all rightly know is 8 and 9. Um, but we don't quote 10. And I want to read through 10. So in contrast to our former way of who we once were, but God, verse 4, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. My grace, you've been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places. Those, those heavenly places again showing up. We'll be going back to them a couple times in the epistle. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. There's that picture of something on display. God intends to show and reveal things to us in the future to which we're the beneficiaries and praise comes out of our mouth. That's, that's the that's this picture of salvation. Then we get, for by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Amen. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Keep reading. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Again, that redemption isn't the end in and of itself. That redemption is, is a step on the way to somewhere. And, and so the redemption gets our sin debt and God's wrath out of the way. It's no longer a problem. It's removed. And we could sing about the glory of that forever. I'm not trying to minimize that. I'm trying to lift other things up as well. Don't hear me trying to push down the importance of the, the, the sacrificial death of Christ, the removal of our sin, the forgiveness of our sins, hardly. But that is to enable us to do the next thing, good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Oh, and just as we were there, that we would be holy and blameless before him. Now we're getting to goals. Um, and so, yeah, we, we want to view... I think, I think about how he will be glorified in that moment. And... Can I read a couple verses of Romans? <clears throat> Why not? I think it goes right along with it. This is Romans 9.22. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much, much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order 
to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy. Hmm. Yeah. Now, again, some of the hardest teachings in the Bible, I think, are relatively straightforward. (laughs) That's hard, but it's not hard because it's a terribly complicated sentence. It's just hard because of what it implies. Yeah. Oh, Oh, Jake. Oh, Trinity. Are you stalling because the debate coach has a question? <laughs> what? <laughs> um, okay, so my question, I have a few. Um, oh. Our given predestination. So the first question um, is, um, so it basically says uh, he predestined us for adoption. And the first question is like, who is quote unquote us? And then, like, should we as Christians really dwell on who is and who is not us? As in, like, ooh, we're just gonna let them go because they're not predestined. Um, and then the second question. Third question, but keep third. going. Third. <laughs> yeah. No, the first one is who is us. The second is ought we to how ought we to consider it or ought not we to consider it? The third. Sorry, I'm just giving you a hard time. But the third one is. No, I deserve it. Um, Okay, so the third question is basically saying, like, given predestination, to what extent, um, like, do we choose God back slash have free will? And the two different sides of this that, like, I'm wrestling with, so, like, on the affirmative, which is what we'd use in debates, uh, for yes, we have free will. There's like John 7, 17, those who choose to do God's will will know, um, like, will know the teaching. Um, and then the second part of that is like in Genesis, when everybody turned away from God, this is the story of Noah. It said that... Um, everyone did what was evil in the sight. Everyone, the thoughts and intentions of the hearts of men were only evil continually. Um, the, the verse I'm referring to oh. is the one where it says, like, it broke God's heart, oh, which yeah. kind of implies that, like, yes. he had his heart broken. Well, yep. he already knew why, did, why was his heart broken. Yes. Um, so that, that's kind of on the affirmative. And then on the negative, uh, which is another debate term as in, no, we don't have free will or our free will is limited, is basically Proverbs uh, 16.9, like, Hearts, uh, human hearts are planned, but like God determines their footsteps. And then there's this verse in Isaiah that basically says that God's plans can't be shaken. Okay, three questions. Let me try to take them in order. Um, five. Que- okay, I'm gonna do it. We got five. Okay, five minutes. Here we go. The short. Okay, let me make a plug. Um, grab the four part seat, the four CD series by the by the uh, secretary's desk. Especially your first two questions. I really cover in the first, second, and fourth message. Um, I, th- I try to, much more than I'm going to give you five minutes right here. Um, so who's the us? Look at the greeting. That's the easy one. Look at the greeting of um, the letter, verse 1, to the saints in Ephesus. The us are the saints in Ephesus, at least in the most immediate context of Ephesians. So he's greeted the Christians, the holy ones, the sanctified or set-apart ones in and around Ephesus. So the us would be believers. Um, second... You're correct that we can make wrong capital off of this. Um, certainly, we could become proud. Paul warns about that in 1 Corinthians and in Romans. Uh, the, the possibility that God choosing us might cause us to be proud. Even the passage I read in Deuteronomy is Moses warning Israel lest they become proud. It's not because you were numerous. It's not because you were great. 
In 1 Corinthians 1, not many wise, not many great. God chose the things that are not to shame the things that are. If anything, our wretchedness, weakness, and worthlessness is the precondition for his choice. That's Paul's argument in Romans in 1 Corinthians 1, where he chose the things that are nothing to put to shame the things that are, the foolish things to shame the wise things. So if we qualify in any sense, it's because we're nothing foolish and shameful. Um, That said... I want to get the um, I want to get the currency of the point out of it that, the, that Paul does. He means it, I think, here for praise. So we should consider election predestination to the extent that it informs our praise. That would be an appropriate response to considering these things. Um, we certainly can't ignore that it's here, um, and then we want to look at the entire Bible to make sure we're emphasizing it proportionally to its place in Scripture. We wouldn't want every Probably, I would, I would be not in favor of renaming a church the first church of the elect in Martinsdale. Like, that would probably be too much of an emphasis, you know? Um, the predestined of Mar- no, that would be emphasizing it too much. Like I said, I love going through the book because you just got to deal with what you deal with. So, again and again, it's meant to either humble us, that's Paul's argument in Romans 11. Remember, you at one time, or even here, I'll show you how Paul uses it to humble us. Go to Ephesians 2. Um, this the, election is meant to humble us and make us feel weak and powerless um, to realize how helpless we were. That's the ra- and and to marvel us then at God's grace. That's the proper response, not the the potential of pride, which I'll admit is a a real possible um, result. And you're right to hate it, and you're right to look down on such a response because it would be contemptible. Here's here's Paul. Um, considering this. Therefore, verse 11 of chapter 2, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Remember, you were formerly in a real tough spot. But now, in Christ, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. And he goes on. So he reminds us, remember, you are hopeless and helpless and lost that's, that's the appropriate response. The, the, the lyric of Amazing Grace, I once was lost, but now am found. Not once was lost and found my way out. Someone found me. Um, Jesus isn't lost. He's the one who finds us. So when people are like, I found the Lord. No, he found you. He was never lost. Um, <laughs> I know what they mean. That's a, that's a clever little phrase, turn of phrase. Now, your, your big question on free will and, and uh, not having free will and this is where I got two minutes, so I'll be quick. I believe, and I argue, that what most people mean by free will, absolutely man has. Jonathan Edwards does, and I, I pretty much think he's, his definition of the biblical data is pretty spot on. Um, I would insist that, and I, and I don't use the term Calvinist a lot because people think it means all sorts of things. I got no problem, given the right definitions, calling myself a seven-point Calvinist. No, no problem at all with that. Seven points. Five's not enough. But 
I don't generally do it because of misunderstandings. But in other words, I strongly believe in the sovereignty of God over all things. In, in verse 11, God works all things to the council. We'll get there. I think all things includes the Holocaust. I think all things includes 9-11 and the bubonic plague. I think it includes all things um, that he works according to his will. We'll, we'll get there. Um, so I'm a strong believer in the sovereignty of God, and I also b- firmly believe that man, you can do whatever you want. Trinity, you are free with no external constraint, with nobody twisting your arm behind your back. You can do whatever you want. Um, you are free to do whatever you want. Nothing will stop you from doing whatever you want. Well, let me qualify that. Nothing can, will stop your will from setting on whatever pleases it. Absolutely believe that. So, I, so part of when I use the term compatibilism or concurrence, those are just philosophical or theological categories to argue for a world that these two things don't exclude each other. Now, the $8 billion question, and we'll end here on a cliffhanger, is you can do whatever you want, but the real question is what decides what you want? <laughs> That's... Th- Basically, what I would say is this. The reason why God must choose is precisely because everyone gets to do what they want and nobody wants him. And because nobody wants him, no one's going to choose him. This is the judgment. We go to John 3.16, Joanne. We go even a little further into verse 19. This is the judgment. Light has come into the world. Men love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to it. So everyone who does evil deeds hates the light. But everyone who does evil deeds gets to do whatever they want. But we know what they want is they hate the light, so they don't come to it. So you've got a state of affairs where God can genuinely invite anyone, to, everyone to come to him. Everyone's invited. No one gets turned away. There's no invisible glass wall that stops people. But precisely because they don't want to, only those who God works in their heart and, 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 and changes their heart and takes their heart of stone and gives them a heart of flesh, only those whom God removes the veil will come. But everyone's free to do whatever they want to do. And everyone will do whatever. In fact, you must do what you want to do. You cannot do other. Anyway, that, I try to take a lot further in that series. We can talk even beyond this as well. That is our time, folks. We're already even over. We have a luncheon. We can even talk at the luncheon, Trinity. Um, Godspeed. God bless. Thank you all.